Okay, how many of you have, um, how many of you have used on a regular basis, or at least at some point in your life, you have used the expression, when I was a kid? How many of you say that? And Okay, anybody here never said that? Like you never used the phrase, when I was a kid? Okay, Gabby, how old are you, Gabby? 11, so she hasn't said, when I was a kid. Gabby, I bet you've said this. I bet you said, when I was a little girl. Okay, you've probably said, okay, and all your friends are nodding. Yes, she has said that, okay. <laughs> you know, there are these expressions that we use, and, and how many of you have found yourself, if you are of some age, for lack of a better word, regurgitating some of the expressions that your parents used that you kind of rolled your eyes at when they said them? And then now that you're saying them, and you're like, whoa, what just came out of my mouth, Okay. Usually when we use the expression, when I was a kid, we are lamenting something, right? We're saying that, well, when I was a kid, we used to, and now that's all different, and, and so it's just not the same. I asked, um, I asked evangelist Bill Rice one time a question that I thought I knew the answer to. So I said, he's a lover of Mustangs. And um, not the horse, but the one with multiple horses, okay? So he loves Mustangs, and he's had them all his life. I said, okay, Dr. Bill, if you could have a, a brand new, off-the-showroom-floor 64 Mustang, brand new, like showroom new 64, or you could have a brand new off the floor, whatever year, let's say 2023, Mustang, which one would you choose? Because I know the answer for me personally, and so I'm waiting for him, a Mustang lover. He's the kind of guy that tracks how many Mustangs are sold versus, especially when the new Camaros came out, the new style. Of course, they're done away with now, but he would track all of this, know how many Mustangs were sold against, and I mean, he's a Mustang guy. Okay, so which one would you choose? Would you choose the 64 right off the showroom floor or the 2023 Mustang? It wasn't 23 when I asked him, but for sake of illustration. And he said, hands down, no question, no hesitation about this. And I'm ready for him to say that he would choose the... Oh, now that's so interesting because some of you in, in my earshot said the 64. And some of you said the new. We have division in the church, okay? <laughs> well, he said no questions asked. He said, I, I know exactly which one I would take. I would take the not the 1964. He said, I would take the 2023. I'd take the new one. I'd say, I, that blew my mind because I'm sure he's going to say the 64. And, and I just like, are you serious? You would take the, you wouldn't take the, he says, no. Do you know how the air conditioning works in a new vehicle? <laughs> he said, do you know how comfortable these things are? And he's a guy who loves to drive. He said, no questions asked, I would take the new. Now, if you ask me that question, I also know which one I would take. I would go the, not the new. I would go the 64. 
I would say, man, give me, give me the off the showroom floor 64. I don't care how bad I'm going to sweat. I'm going to sweat in 64 style because that's the one I would have chosen. There is something about, I don't know, when I was a kid, there's something nostalgic about it. About a year ago, Julie and I were, um, I was going to speak at a teacher's conference in Michigan. And um, we went a day early and we spent the night in Adrian, Michigan, my, my growing up hometown. Hadn't been there for years, so we spent the night in Adrian. Spent the night in a hotel that really is kind of this new little jog off from um, Michigan Avenue, the street that I grew up on. And we had the nostalgia tour in Adrian that day. I mean, we went to, um, we went to Morning Fresh Donuts, at least I did, because I'm going to get some nutty donuts that are my favorite from Morning Fresh Donuts. And, and we walked downtown and walked past the old places and, and drove by the, the house that I grew up in and, and just all the nostalgia tour. And there is something that was meaningful about yesterday to me. But it's not a place that I would go back to. Now certainly I would if the Lord directed us to move back to Adrian, Michigan. But, but I don't want to go back to yesterday. There was something really special about going through it and, and visiting and seeing meaningful. Because it's part of me. But I don't want to live in yesterday. We have been addressing the matter of change, and the title of the message tonight is simply A Changing Generation. A Changing Generation. David Kinman, he's the author of a book titled You Lost Me, said this. He said, a reasonable argument can be made that no generation of Christians has lived through a set of cultural changes so profound and so lightning fast. Now, again, that's speculative. We, we don't have any data to be able to determine if this generation today has, has experienced the greatest amount and the most rapid changes that mankind has known. But certainly, the, the indicators of what people even used to say. For example, we sometimes talk about the greatest generation, the World War II generation. And then we talk about a, a generation of boomers that come along after them. And, and then we're going to identify some things about um, Gen Alpha is really where, where we're at right now with our elementary and middle school kids. But Gen Z is one of those demographics that we have at Campus Church an opportunity to minister to in some, some really profound ways. But when you started to look at what is it that would be words that would define these generations, it's so insightful that our early generations would oftentimes use descriptors that were quite similar about respect, about hard work, about endurance. But now the Gen Z, they, they are so different, even the millennials. You start to look at how they self-define and there's no comparison. They're using descriptors and, 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 and words about themselves that we say, we don't have any context for that. How is it that they're coming to these conclusions? And, 
And again, Kinman in his book said they're living in cultural change that's so rapid and so radical that we really don't have anything to compare it to with previous generations. When we start to think about some of the scriptural insights into change, we get a little bit nervous because we read things like Proverbs 24, 21 that says, my son, fear thou the Lord and the king and meddle not with them that are given to change. Good words. Meddle not with them that are given to change. Well, you say, well, well, should we just not ever change anything? The expression given to change here in the Proverbs passage is an expression that means don't mess with those who are chameleon-like in their desire to hide through change. So you never know who you're getting. You might get this, you might get that. You just never know because they are the proverbial chameleon and striving to just be whatever will most benefit them at any given moment. And the church is not supposed to be chameleon-like. In other words, we're not supposed to over-contextualize the gospel, but the, the gospel does always have some cultural context. We're just not to, in other words, to, to overly contextualize the gospel means that we're spending more time with the culture and the wrappings of the gospel than we are the gospel itself. Have you ever gotten a gift that was so beautifully wrapped that when you opened the present, you were a little disappointed with what was inside? Like, wow, the wrapping is so spectacular. Like, whoa, this is so, but then the gift itself lost its meaning. And I think at times today, churches are striving to change so much that we're diminishing what it is we're trying to communicate. So we have to be careful regarding this, but we're, we're not supposed to be a chameleon. And then another passage of Scripture that, that actually, when, when I was preparing to complete ministry here at Campus Church as a youth pastor, and Jim Shetler, pastor of Campus Church at that time, my pastor, um, preached a message that was really a, a farewell message he had us turn to Psalm 55, 19. And then he said, because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. A place that will absolutely not change or a person that will not finds that they're more connected to their surroundings than they are to their Savior. That I'm so connected to the way I want everything to be that this is what I prize rather than the one who is in charge of it all. Um, Spurgeon, in commenting on that passage of Scripture, Spurgeon said, it is a very manifest fact that long-continued ease and pleasure are sure to produce the worst influences upon graceless men. Stagnant water becomes putrid. Those are strong words, but what he's trying to help us understand is because they have no changes, we become so focused then on our familiar surroundings that, again, we're not focused on our Savior. So when we start to think about a changing generation, what does that mean to people like you and me? Well, let's consider some things about Gen Z And that really is still where we're at with one of the communities that make up the community of Campus Church. Um, In January, we did speak about differing communities that we have at Campus Church. And and it's just who we are. We have a, a few different communities that make up the whole. 
And so we have a community that is um, faculty staff at Pensacola Christian College. It's part of the community. It really was when Pensacola Christian College started, Campus Church began, 1974. We're going to celebrate our 50th this next July on the very day that Campus Church had its first service. And so it, it began. One of our communities, faculty, staff, Pensacola Christian College. Another one, then if we just kind of broaden out from there, another part of our community would be the community of Pensacola. People oftentimes ask, how did you and your wife meet? And the honest truth is we met because of Campus Church. Um, Julie's parents, really, they, they were looking for a local church. And so they, they just, they came, visited Campus Church um, this many years ago. And they decided, hey, Campus Church is the local church that we want to be a part of. They're part of a community of believers that make up the community of Campus Church. And so we have that community. We have another community, and it's not one that we're striving to say you're part of our church, but I think they benefit from the ministry of Campus Church. That would be our live stream and our rejoice community. We, we hear from them all the time, all the time. We heard from them this morning, one of, one of our, our, the people that follow us, <laughs> to, to borrow a word, they follow us religiously, okay? And um, they're just really connected, so grateful that Campus Church is providing something for them that's a supplement, an aid, a help to their local church ministry. So we have that community as well, Rejoice in the Lord, people that are wonderfully connected with that ministry. And then we have another part of our ministry, which is college students. It's just part of our community. And so when we start to think about, that's a large demographic, and we have opportunities for influence. What is that demographic like? Well, first of all, they're born in the late 90s, and we're going to fly through some of this content, but they're born in the late 90s. They really, their, their generation goes up through about 2009, 2010, depending on who you're looking at. That's this generation, Gen Z, that we're referencing right now. They comprise nearly one-third of our population. Did you catch that? They are, make up nearly one-third of our population. They outnumber both millennials and baby boomers. In the year 2020, they accounted for a third of the U.S. population. Almost half of them are connected to a digital device for 10-plus hours a day. Okay, if you want to talk about, wow, we don't have anything to compare this to. Do you understand? We, we don't have data that we can look back on and say, okay, how long were the baby boomers connected to a digital device? Well, we don't have that information, okay, because they just were not. Just, just for point of reference in this room right now, how many of you really don't remember a time before cell phones? Raise your hand. Raise them high, okay? This is a lot of people. Okay, like, okay, cell phones, they've always been a part of life, right? Okay, how many of you remember a time um, when you used to, you know, like you, you, you put your finger in this little hole and you spun it around? How many of you, that was kind of like your growing up time? How many of you, how many of you only had to dial four numbers to connect to somebody? Okay, that was us, 2519. Try it right now, see who you get. But 2519 was ours. How many of you had a party line? How many of you listened in when you weren't supposed to? 
Some of you did. Okay, if, you, if you're talking about, if you don't have no idea what a party line is, then ask one of the people who had their, their hands up. It wasn't really a big party, okay, but, but it was called a party line. We don't have any context for how do we measure those who, who on average spend 10 plus hours a day connected digitally. They receive over 3,000 text messages a month, okay? And some of them, I think, do that during a church service, okay? So 3,000 text messages a month. And this is our learning curve, okay? Um, you know, sometimes we, we feel like we're just getting, you know, figuring out millennials, but th- this is where we're at today. And um, what's driving them? Gen Z, what is it that motivates them? Okay, a couple things if we compare the previous generation, millennials. They're less likely than millennials to have a driver's license by age 18. How many of you got your driver's license the day of your birthday? That would be me. Okay, lots of us. Um, They're less likely than millennials to have dated by the age 18. I just read an article just this past weekend about the fact that, that Gen Z, they're, they're not connecting in the same way with a member of the opposite gender. They're just not connecting, dating in the same way. Um, they're less likely than millennials to have moved out of their parents' home by age 30. Some of you are like, whoa, this is concerning, okay? They're less likely than millennials to be married before the age 30. They're different from millennials in these ways. They have higher expectations, especially related to access to state-of-the-art technology. Less likely. Okay, so, so um, you know, they're different from millennials. They're less likely in a lot of ways, but they're different in that a millennial doesn't expect the same uh, need for something that is technologically current. This is an aside, and it really fits better later in the message than now, but by way of illustration. In, the, in the, um, the annual report, I'm gonna talk about what one of the major investments that Campus Church made in this past fiscal year. And we're, you're looking at them, okay? So we, we joined in with Pensacola Christian College and we participated in expense for the screens that are behind you. The, the former technology, just the center screen and a 4-3 orientation was really old technology, 20 plus years old. So we, we invested a large sum of money into the screens that are behind you, but it's part of the expectation, quite honestly, of a generation that's coming up. The day that we had, the first day that we had the screens in, the first day when we, we, we came in, there were such varying responses to the new screens. Like powerfully varied responses to new screens. There's a whole generation that's like, oh, those are great. Man, they're so crisp and clear and bright and vibrant. And those are, man, love the screens. And then there's a whole nother demographic that's like, why in the world do we have those kinds of screens? I mean, if you knew the responses that that I received just in a matter of moments regarding screens, those were some of the responses because of some unrealized need or realized need for change, depending in large part upon our generation. They feel the need, they, they need to feel appreciated. 
Again, this is how they're different from millennials. This is the kind of idea, and I'm not disparaging this, okay? But it is the idea that everyone gets some kind of acknowledgement. Or sometimes we joke about everybody gets a participation award, okay? There's a need in Gen Z to have some sense of appreciation. They're different from millennials in that they have greater need regarding their individualistic aspect. Okay, they are more individualistic. Now, again, there are some interesting things about this. They, they oftentimes express some desire for mentorship, for connection. And then they also have some individualistic characteristics. Um, some of the things that I've read said these are competing aspects of their personalities, but they're real parts of them. It's almost as if they are some unique mosaic that is being constructed from varying parts where I pick this and I pick this and I pick this and it makes up the whole of who they are. Um, they're more individualistic. They're more global in their thinking and interactions. I find that thrilling. And it really is true. Gen Z, they are, they're global in their thinking. Okay, how can I do something big? How can I impact something beyond just my little pool? What can we do to, and they are thinking in these ways, and they're not just being idealistic. Now, it, it may not be something that they can do, but they're, they're saying, how can I impact the world? Wow, as far as Christianity is concerned, what wonderful thinking when a generation starts to ask, what can we do to impact the world? It's because their world has shrunk through technology. Uh, they value college, Gen Z. They value college. 89% rated college education as valuable. Well, think about how that impacts people like you and I, or campus church more specifically. Wow, th this group values the fact that they are getting higher education, and here they are in the middle of campus church, and we have opportunities with those who are here because they value what a place called Pensacola Christian College has to offer. Okay, because this generation values education, Christianity, not just campus church, but Christianity, churches on a large scale have to offer something more than just moralistic preaching. Do you understand what we're saying regarding moralistic preaching? Moralistic preaching is oftentimes done in church, but quite honestly, it could be done at a Boy Scouts club. It could be done at a uh, I don't know, at the local chamber of commerce because we're just talking about things that we value. But the problem with things that we value is those values can so rapidly change and then we start to wonder, um, where is the basis for your value? For example, if a pastor values certain type of dress or a schedule or music or method and can reproduce it, then it's deemed as successful. So, you know, well, our pastor really values, and then you fill in the blank. Well, values do matter. Don't, don't get me wrong on this. But if we're talking about moralistic things, like just like that's nice to do, and we're, we're encouraging this because the pastor or the broader church values this, we have to have some reasons as to why should they value it as well. Not just because we say this is valuable, upon what basis? Educate me 
is, is really what this generation is saying is, why should I adopt that value as my own? Again, the, the challenge with this too is values change. I mean, at one point in my life, I highly valued my blankie, okay? I'm serious about that. So I really like at one point in my life, that is the thing I wanted with me. At one point in my life, I highly valued basketball. At one point in my life, I highly valued my 1969 Plymouth Barracuda. Oh, I love that car. I, I bought it for 150 bucks, okay? It was beat up. It was, somebody asked uh, me what color it was the other day, and my wife interrupted, and she said, Bondo, okay? Some of you don't even know what Bondo is, but I, I valued that car. But values change. I, I mean, what, what have you valued that has come and gone? Do, do you understand the point that I'm trying to make? Are we sharing timeless truth, or are we... Are we trying to communicate and get across some timely, not timeless, but for us, like, oh, that's a timely value. The point we're again trying to make is if all we're teaching is values in a moralistic fashion, what do we do when this generation comes to value something else? So we oftentimes talk a lot about worldview. Okay, so what are we talking about? How do we define worldview? Because we're really talking about something more than just a, a, a momentary set of values. Something through which you're going to process everything. Well, first of all, the three things that we would use to define worldview, it arises from a big story about the world. What is world? Well, it arises from a big story about the world. Sometimes we call that the meta-narrative, the big story. And everyone who has a worldview, every religious view, um, if you're a, a humanist, um, you have a worldview. You have an evolutionary um, answer to the big story. Um, every, every worldview, they all are going to offer some aspect of a big story about the world. Um, how do we define it? Number two, it becomes the lens through which you look at the world. It's the lens. Okay, you're going to look at the world through this lens. Okay, so what's the big story? Now I start, that, that, that comes up now, and I start to see everything in light of my worldview. And then number three, it becomes the system of belief that informs our every thought and action. It becomes our system of belief. It informs our every thought, all of our actions. So how do we begin to reach this culture's beliefs, assumptions, and values about the world? Well, one of the ways we do that is by, by doing what God did. I'm not trying to trivialize Scripture in the least with this. In fact, I'm trying to actually elevate Scripture. One way we could say it is the church is supposed to tell stories. Say, so what, what do you mean by that? Do you know what God did for us in large part throughout the Scripture? One of the things the church is called to do is to tell the big story. Do you know how many stories we have with which we engage our minds regarding the truth of God's word? I, I don't know if you saw this. Someone sent me the article recently. Let, let me mention his name so that we're not dancing around, whatever. And I'm, I'm not endorsing and I'm not certainly condemning. I'm just saying this was a, a recent um, um, video that I watched that someone sent me. Uh, Tucker Carlson, a news commentator, um, been in the news himself a lot lately. 
He was just doing an interview with somebody, and he said, for the first time in my life, I've started to read the Bible. He said, it's fascinating. He said, he, he's, he's, his religious background is Episcopalian. And so that's what he says, oh, I'm an Episcopalian. But he's reading stories now, and he says, why didn't anybody, why don't they use these? Well, that's what we do use. We use the stories of the word of God. And you know what they do? They start to connect us to a view of the world because it's laid out for us. And do you know how essentially important the beginning of that story is? Have you heard a lot today about UFOs? Okay, listen, does the Bible help us process and see life in light of everything? And the answer is yes. Do you know some of the answers that some worldviews provide is that, okay, maybe we didn't just happen from nothing. Okay, maybe we didn't just, you know, explode out of nothing. But if there's such a thing as intelligent design, then it's probably some, some you know, other higher intelligent life form that actually seeded life onto this planet. Well, what they're doing is they're, they're looking now at their worldview through a specific lens. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We start right there, and now this becomes the lens through which we, we process. We're telling the big story, the meta narrative. What does that include? Well, it includes creation. This is how we got here the fall, this is the problem, and redemption, restoration. Here's the answer to all of the problems. This is how the whole story resolves. In fact, in the Tucker Carlson interview, he said, I can't wait to hear how it ends. He's fascinated with the big story. And the person doing the interview said, well, I can tell you how it ends. We win, is what he said. Okay, so here's, here's the idea. What do we have to do? Well, we gotta, we gotta start you know, doing what it is that God gave us regarding this big story. Let me back up just a little bit. Let me restate that. This is what the church is doing. It's not that like, hey, we've got to start teaching creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is what the church is doing. And by the way, in, on so many different levels and so many different aspects, this is what we're doing strategically. Do you know, even with our college students, Campus Church oversees all of their Bible study groups. Do you know one of the things that we're doing is we're strategically approaching from a biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption. What do they need to know? You say, why are you, why are you, you know, can't somebody just teach what they want to teach? Well, on a lot of levels, yeah, teachers, just we want you to, to, to you be directed. But, you know, on some of these early levels with freshmen into sophomore, do you know what we're doing? We're being strategic because this is a group we have to get these truths communicated to. I know that there are, are uh, there's a person that's controlling what we're walking through, but I'm not going to take time tonight to go through creation, fall, and redemption, restoration. I have a lot of content regarding this, and it's all valuable content. We just will never get to where we need to conclude if I stay there. Okay, so some questions we have to ask for ourselves tonight. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, those, that's the meta narrative. That is the big story. That's what we do every time the church assembles. 
Do you know when, when Paul is giving an admonition to a younger Timothy, he, he commands. Like he's saying, this is a non-negotiable. I'm not giving you something that is a good idea. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1, he says, I charge thee. Those are big words. He's, th- this is not, hey, Timothy, um, give this good consideration. He's not saying that. I charge thee. And then he adds more weight to this. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa. If you want to talk about adding serious weight to the charge, first of all, Timothy takes it with a lot of weight when he hears the apostle Paul say, I charge you. And let me tell you, I charge you before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, this is a non-negotiable. Timothy, you don't have any wiggle room with this. This is not left up to the culture. This is not left up to the generation. Timothy, this is not left up to you. By the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, Timothy as a pastor, and then by reference, we all who stand in a pulpit similar to this have a charge before Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering, patiently doing this, and with doctrine. Listen, one of the unchangeables of campus church, by God's grace, is that campus church will always preach the word. You know, we joke a little bit about, um, you know, going through Romans. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, do you really, like, is Romans your favorite book? Because you've been there for two years, okay? And I said, I don't know if it's my favorite book, but we're just walking through the book. And isn't it interesting how heavily doctrinal, belief-driven the first part of the book is, and now how heavily behaviorally driven the last part of the book is? And what are we doing? We're just taking the word and preaching the word. That, that can never change. What, what is it that we're supposed to do? Well, in, in light of the centrality of preaching, how is it, what, what are some of the peripherals then? Because that preaching is not going to change. What on a peripheral? These things, they can change. Well, some things that you can do, I can do, we as a church can do. How do we do this? Get truth to college students. By the way, let me also add one important nuance to this. By, by these focused comments, please do not think that the exclusive or even at any given moment, the most important ministry of Campus Church is to college students. It's just one of those ministries that the Lord brings them to us. We would be foolish to not purposefully, strategically, intentionally figure out how can we minister to them to the greatest degree possible. Okay, so how do we do it? Okay, number one, realize that learning happen, realize that learning can happen in both directions. Okay, we want to reach this Gen Z as campus church, how can we do that? Realize that learning can happen in both directions. Do you know oftentimes we like to be in the teacher seat, okay? Um, but 
how is it that so oftentimes Jesus himself said, hey, there is a group that you can learn from. And if you'll be aware and watching, even a child can offer some measure of instruction. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we're on equal planes, and it doesn't mean that everything carries the same weight, but it does mean that you and I should be adept, in tune, watching for what do I have that I can learn from a group that is aware of some things that I am not. I mean, seriously, how many of you have somebody that is 20 years younger than you that you call for tech support on a regular basis? I'm not just talking about, hey, this is how you set up your phone. There are some things about our culture and about our life that we can learn from them. And I think if we're prepared to learn, we might also be prepared to provide some learning. And number two, be willing to change what you can. Again, there are some things that we can't change, but there are certainly some things that we can Uh, One statistic that I read said there is a 43% drop-off between the teen and early adult years in terms of church engagement. Did you hear that? A 43% drop-off between the teen and early adult years in terms of church engagement. Oh, wow. We We want to fight against that. What are some things that we can be prepared to change? Well, what will we change as a church? And again, clearly there are some things that we can't change and that we won't change. The central activity of the assembling of the church is preaching and teaching the word of God and reproving, rebuking, exhorting um, with all long-suffering and doctrine. What will we, what can we change? Well, there are some things that we've been doing and we're going to continue to do. We will continue to sing a variety of songs that connect us to both our rich faith traditions as well as new songs that are doctrinally, doctrinally rich, musically conservative, and generationally appealing. I know one of, the, one of the biggest concerns that churches have, and understandably so, is connected to music, and I get it. Music is a language, and a language communicates. So we have to be careful with music because music has something that it's communicating. And I can use language for edifying. I can also use language to destroy and tear down. We want to be, we want to continue to be historically, traditionally, doctrinally rich. But we also want to do what the Bible says. I'm not not taking this out of context, but sing a new song unto the Lord. A fresh song to the Lord. Okay, so I was just thinking about what we sang today. And I have our, our uh, order of services here. Okay, hey, how many of you grew up singing, let's see, For Me to Live is Christ, to Die is Gain? How many of you grew up with, with uh, any of you remember when the song was introduced? Okay, For Me to Live is Christ, Dr. Adkins is over there. Yeah, I think I do remember that, okay. And I'm, I'm not really being silly about that because there are some in here, it's like, oh, I remember. Um, how many of you remember, because I remember this as a youth pastor, how many of you remember when Lord Prepare Me to Be a Sanctuary kind of was introduced? I mean, we sang it every time in youth group. Uh, every time. Do you know one of the songs that we sang when I was a kid in youth group? Um, I mean, we sang it in youth group. Teenager, Are You Lonely? Do You Need a Friend? How many of you remember that song? Any of you? Yeah, a few of you. Teenager, Are You Lonely? Do You Need a Friend? Um, not what we're singing today, Okay. In fact, if I sang it for you today, you'd be like, wow, what year were you born, okay? None of your business, all right? So 
You know, it's songs, okay, for me to live as Christ, we sang that this morning. And then um, we sang Highly Exalted tonight. Now, I'm assuming this. I'm just assuming. But I'm assuming that there are people in here that say, you know, of the two, I really prefer for me to live as Christ. Is that okay? Well, how about we do a study in Romans chapter 14? Because I think there are also some who would really prefer highly exalted. Well, the reason I prefer for me to live is Christ above highly exalted is, okay. So can a church be, be honoring its traditions and its histories while concurrently engaging in its current generation? I didn't, I didn't finish reading the, the, the little, um, what I had written. So let me just finish reading it. Um, we will continue to sing a variety of songs that connect us to both our rich faith traditions as well as new songs that are doctrinally rich, musically conservative, and generationally appealing. We're, we're not changing who we are. There, no matter where you go, there's always something about the personality of the church. That's okay. There's a lot of personalities of churches across our community. We're not changing who we are. We're, we're conservative by nature. We're traditional by our history. But we should continue to sing new songs that resonate with who we are, that connect generationally, and communicate the beauty and the power of the gospel. Uh, what will we do um, regarding what, be willing to change what you can? We will allow in our service a broader expression of response in worship. You say, well, that's a change for campus church. You say, and what do you mean by that? Historically, a campus church, well, let me, let me say it this way. This next Sunday, I'm going to preach at Mikado Baptist Church. So Pastor Rusty Smith has been in our pulpit on many Sundays and preach the word for us. Pastor Smith asked me, would you come up and preach um, all day on Sunday at Mikado Baptist? So I'm gonna do that. Okay, I was just reviewing the notes this past week on, um, that we put together for what should I expect when I go preach somewhere? Well, dress. So he had that listed and, or, you know, Julie prepares all this for me and so she had dress. Um, I'm gonna wear a coat and a shirt, and tie, yes or no? Tie, yes or no? What do you think? How many of you, yes, you're going to wear a tie? Raise your hand. How many of you, no, you're not going to wear a tie? Raise your hand. Well, more no ties than yes ties. Well, watch the live stream and see what it, <laughs> Okay, so he asked me, now he's not going to be offended if I wear a tie, but he asked, he said, typically, you know, I don't wear a tie on Sunday morning. Now, let me ask you, is that, is that historical or is that cultural? Well, it's probably a, more cultural for them now. So that's part of their culture. Is that, a, is that to some, now don't raise your hand, but to some in here, is that a disappointing part of the culture? Some would say, yes, that's a disappointing part. Remember Romans 14. Okay, to some, you'd say, oh, listen, oh, that would be glory for me, glory for me. <laughs> Now, here's my deal. I actually, on a Sunday morning, I prefer to wear a tie. 
I prefer it. I like it. It's because of my history, my tradition, because of my closet. Okay, I just like, I like to wear a tie. I feel like I'm readying myself for the pulpit. I like to wear a tie. And some of you are just saying, brother, clothes and prayer, okay? That is the wrong way to go. Well, it's just part of my history. But what will I do when I stand in his pulpit? I, I, will, I will come, in a sense, outside of my preference, and I will honor their traditions. Okay, what will happen when um, a song is sung at, at Pastor Rusty's church when the song is concluded? Well, people will applaud, and that they will. Okay, well, some of you would say, well, I don't like that part of response. Some of you would say, I would love that part of response. I have a whole, I have a, a, an email box specifically just for that, that topic. And, and some of you are in that box, okay? <laughs> so it's so interesting to me because there are such divergent thoughts about response in worship. Campus Church is interesting with this. Our history has been that we don't typically, um, you know, that kind of response is, is not typical. Um, here, some of you would remember this history. How many of you remember, how many of you were part of Campus Church when you weren't supposed to say amen in a service? How many of you were part of Campus Church then? Okay. Lots of you. That really was the expectation at Campus Church. So don't, don't respond audibly. So can you? Well, yes, you can um, today. Do you? Well, sometimes. And, and it's not really, honestly, my, my I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a big, uh, you know, shake that bush kind of preacher, okay? And if somebody says amen, it confuses me, and I usually start over. So, you know, it's just. <laughs> but do people ever say amen? Oh, that, I got two people, okay? That was. Well, sure they do. And can they? Well, yes, they can. Again, because of our tradition, our culture, over the last, wow, boy, five years I have stood behind this pulpit. We have, we have gone to great lengths to ask people not to respond with applause unless our children were singing. It does help us understand this was not a moral matter for us. This was a traditional historic matter for us. So if children were singing, when they finished, we would, we would as a church, that's been our history, it's been that way for a long time, campus church would applaud. And what that was was an audible expression of gratitude and thanks to God. Okay, so the question is, can campus church um, exist without stifling someone's response that may not be yours or mine? And I think it's a healthy thing for campus church to be able to exist with a practice that may appeal to some and not to others, and yet here we are as one body representing Jesus Christ. Whenever I have addressed applause in services previously, it's been so interesting to me because I've never really addressed or the, the messages, sermons that I've preached have not been so much about applause as they have been about who we are regarding worship and that our form our practice has been, and then I have always said, I've always connected that to, for this time, and I've always said this is not a moral matter, so what we want to do, what can we change? We can, let me see how I, 
how I um, wrote this. Oh yeah, um, most of this I've said. Well, well. Oh, while not all will be, while none will be compelled to applaud, just as none are compelled to say amen, we can change the stifling of a natural response when it's offered as an honest expression of affirmation of our praise, gratitude, and worship to God. I think one of our big challenges with applause has been what we've said has been, well, we don't want to, we're not trying to applaud, uh, uh, you know, the performance. I think that that argument is one of the things that we're talking about is let's give some really good reasons. Uh, isn't it true that like, wow, some really stirring presentation musically could bring about a response of wholehearted amens, like amen. And then others could be rather tepid or, or silent or none at all. It is not the, the form that I am personally as concerned with as I am to whom it is being offered. So if a person says, my, my expression in a culture today is simply to say, praise God, then we would say, praise God. Now, there will be times when I will sit and just sit, and I'm just going to say, oh, praise God. And there might be times when I'm sitting and Dr. Zach is just like, amen. And I'll probably look at him like, what are you doing? You know, it's just the, it's just the personal, individual, how am I going to respond? I will also say that um, I, I think I put in my notes, um, yeah, if this is abused, it will be addressed just as we have in the past. Every year I've had to address something. I said early on, I said, I'm not prepared to make a decision because it was really kind of coming to a head when I had been here for just over a year. And normally I think um, for a pastor, man, give yourself about four years to start figuring things out. This summer we finished our fifth year. I know this will be a change in how people respond, but I think it's a change that culturally speaking will allow us to engage a college student who comes from a church like Pastor Smith's. And in their church, they're going to just say, wow, thank the Lord, amen. And then they come to campus church and it's very formal, very still, and very reflective. It will be a change and for some, it will be an uncomfortable disappointment. For others, it will be a celebratory expression of thank the Lord. Um, for the past several years, oh, let me give just a couple others and then I'm going to run through a list and then we'll be done. Um, we're preparing, these are some things that we can change and I wanted you to be aware that we're planning to change. Um, this fall, we are working toward allowing PCC seniors to choose between their senior class Bible study groups on Sunday morning and or choose any one of our other adult Bible study group options. That a college student could say, as a senior, I'm going to go to my college Bible study group. Or, wow, I'm going to go to that adult Bible study group. And you say, what's the purpose of that? Well, a couple purposes. First of all, we want them rubbing shoulders with you. 
to have additional opportunity for you and them to interact one with another. And then we want to prepare them for making decisions that they're going to be making in a matter of months when they are going to churches around the country and literally around the world. So we want them to, to make some choices about where am I going to go for my Bible study group. They may be sitting next to you. You say, well, what if that makes my class crowded? It might. But it's another opportunity to rub shoulders and maybe really closely rubbing shoulders with some PCC college seniors. Um, we're going to broaden our life share groups. Those are groups that meet on Wednesday night. We did them this last year during the service on Wednesday night. They're discipleship groups and, and they're also going to be mentorship groups where we're just helping them with some of the discipleship foundational aspects of the Christian life and then some of the ongoing aspects of the Christian life. Again, that's not going to be for everybody, but it's a change that we can make. You say, well, I think everybody should be in the Wednesday night service. Again, that's something that, that is beneficial, but it's not the exclusive way that we can have influence in the lives of people. Let me, let me run through some others, and I know we're late. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't wait for students to come to you. Um, Pastor Burdick has been working on just a little plan for us, and I love the plan. He, called, he said this, he, when he presented it, he said, hey, have you ever tapped someone on the shoulder like another college student who was goofing around in church? Okay, don't raise your hand if you've ever done that. Um, and don't raise your hand if you've ever had the tap, okay? But sometimes, how many of you have ever been so focused on, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say college student, how many of you have ever been so focused on a college student that you couldn't focus on the message because they're goofing around the whole time in church? How many of you ever had that before? Oh, some of those hands went up fast. Okay, whoa, yes. In fact, right now, I'm looking at one, okay. All right, uh, well then maybe you tapped them, you know, hey. Okay, or maybe after the service. I'm not saying that the tap should go away, but he said this, you know, sometimes we're so quick to give that kind of tap. He said, how about another kind of tap? And it was a, a touch, ask, pray. Like just to get to know him. Hey, touch, you know, to reach out. Hey, uh, what's your name? My name is, uh, yeah, we've gone to church here for the past year and a half and and um, yeah, this is our church. So no, yeah, we live um, we live up in you know, and yeah. So this is our church. And and uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, so you're what year? Okay. Hey, what's going on with you this week? Got anything big coming up? Yeah, I got. Ah, uh, what's your name? Can I can I pray for you this week? Do you know what would be really wonderful if if they sat in your area the next week and you said, Hey, how did it go with? It's another kind of tap. I get it that campus church is unique, that people, I mean, we oftentimes bolt out of here for a lot of different reasons. Many of you work together all week long. You get your fellowship cup filled through the course of the week with other wonderful believers. College students, when college students are here, you got to get out of the way, you know. Or, listen, you're just going to be in this. You're going to be carried along, you know, catch the wave. And before you know it, you wind up in the commons, okay? And you just, you couldn't help it. Okay, I know why we head out, because we, we're not, we're, everybody's not getting their fellowship here. But for so many, they, they miss the fact that they don't stand around for 30 minutes, 40 minutes after a service and just fellowship. 
Look for an opportunity before. You say, well, I didn't want to. They're on their phone. I, I know. Tap anyways. We'll, we'll try to address that and give some additional helps with that a little bit later on. Um, uh, let's go to number five. Don't get frustrated that they are not like you. Yeah, just keep going, yeah. Seek to create positive faith attitudes. Don't get frustrated that they're not just like you. Number six, be as kind as you can afford to be. We universally respond positively to those who show consistent acts of kindness. And then number seven, realize you may not reach them all, but don't let that stop you from trying. And then lastly, find ways to fill the disciple-making gap through genuine relationships. This makes us uncomfortable it may take time, it gets messy, but they are the means by which your life can touch another. Isn't, isn't it exciting to be at a place called Campus Church? There's no place like it. And by God's grace, we will use the day to the greatest advantage of influencing people for greater purposes for the cause of Christ.